0: This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church, and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode we have questions from Noah, Joanna, Emmeline, Susanna, and Amara. First we'll tackle a few serious questions, then we'll look at this episode's big question, And we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. Let's start with our serious questions. In this episode, we have questions from Noah and Joanna. First, Noah asks, when did being baptized begin? Well, Noah, that's an interesting question. Baptism, the way that we would recognize it, begins in the New Testament but it does have some precedence in the Old Testament. If you go through the Levitical law and you look at the rituals found in the Old Testament, there are some ritual washings that take place, and these washings would symbolize cleansing from sin or corruption, and there are also some events in Old Testament history that foreshadow the development of baptism as we know it. So, for example, In 1 Peter, the salvation of Noah's family from the flood is given as a sign of what we are offered in baptism. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 refers to the parting of the Red Sea and sees that as a type of baptism, too. I think you could say the same thing for the crossing of the River Jordan in Joshua chapter 3. But when we think of baptism proper, the sacrament of baptism— it's instituted by Jesus Christ. That's a practice that we see in Scripture beginning with John the Baptist. And that's why he was called John the Baptist, because he was so strongly associated with this special baptism for repentance from sin. Then Jesus, in receiving that baptism, institutes the idea of baptism as a sacrament for us and for the church. So that's really the origin of baptism, although it is prefigured and foreshadowed by earlier signs that God instituted in the Old Testament. And now Joanna asks, why did you become Presbyterian? Well, Joanna, there was a theologian once who described God as the all-conditioner. And what he meant by that was that God is in control of all the conditions of our lives, the circumstances, the environment that shapes us and that leads us into certain paths so that we can never really understand why things happen in our lives without reference to God. And when it comes to why I became a Presbyterian, I believe that I became a Presbyterian through God's work in my life. Now, in human terms, it happened something like this. I had always had a strong confidence in the Bible as God's word. And in my church growing up, which definitely wasn't Presbyterian, that was a feeling that was constantly reinforced. People taught me, and this was good, that that you should always believe everything that the Bible teaches. But as I grew older, I came to see that there were certain things that the Bible taught that we didn't believe and and that we didn't even talk about. When you got to passages like Ephesians 1 or Romans 9, instead of accepting what God says there, we seem to put a lot of effort into explaining why God didn't really mean what he said there. When I finally discovered the Presbyterian tradition and all the other good churches that came out of the Reformation, suddenly here was a place where we didn't skip over the parts of the Bible that we didn't like or couldn't understand, the things that were difficult and and hard. Not that Presbyterians have all the answers, far from it but we try to accept everything that God says, and we try to leave mysterious the things that God hasn't fully explained. I think it's fair to say that no tradition or denomination is perfect. We're all human, and we all have plenty to learn from each other. But the thing that I've always appreciated about churches like Grace is that even when God doesn't fit our assumptions, we are determined to believe what he says. And now it's time for the big question, which comes to us this time from Imelin. So let's give Imelin a round of applause. Here's Imelin's question. What does eschatological mean anyway? You know what makes this such a good big question? The fact that it's about one of those big words that we're always using in church. We always use it, but we don't always explain it. So I'm happy to have an opportunity to explain this big word now. Now, there are two forms of this word that you're likely to hear at Grace. Eschatology, which is a noun, and eschatological, which is an adjective. So the dictionary definition of eschatology is simple. It's the study of last things. In other words, eschatology is the branch of theology where we study the final outcome of history, the return of Jesus, final judgment, eternal life, and the new creation. The word eschatology comes from the Greek word eschaton, and you won't be surprised to learn that that word means last. So you'll sometimes hear phrases like the last days or the end times, used as synonyms for eschatology. In other words, they mean the same thing. Now, Sometimes people will even use that Greek word eschaton to refer to the end of this world when Jesus returns. They'll call that the eschaton, the end, the last days. So just to make sure we're clear, whenever you hear me talk about eschatology, or when I say that something is eschatological, What I mean is that it has something to do with the last days, with the end of this world, with the return of Jesus and the final fulfillment of all of God's promises. Now, let me give you two examples to think about. First, I'll give you an example of something that is clearly eschatological. And then second, I'll give you an example of something that doesn't seem to have anything to do with eschatology the last days. But when you think about it, it actually does. So here's the obvious example first the second coming of Jesus Christ. In fact, I would say that the second coming is the most important event in eschatology. Everything else about the last things is a footnote to the return of Jesus. If you think of all the events related to the second coming Jesus' return, the resurrection of the dead, final judgment, All of these are topics that we classify as eschatology with a capital E. Now let me give you the less obvious example. The Lord's Supper. When we come to the table at Grace and we celebrate communion, you'll often hear me talk about the eschatological aspect of this sacrament. So what do I mean by that? Well, one of the things the Bible says will happen when Jesus returns is the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is referred to in Revelation chapter 19. So remember, eschatology is about last days, last things, and Jesus' returning is one of those things, and when that happens, Revelation 19 mentions the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, it points backward and it points forward. It points backward to the Last Supper between Jesus and his disciples, the night when Jesus was betrayed, as the words of institution say. But it also seems to point forward to this coming marriage supper of the Lamb. So with that in mind, I might say something like this. This feast meaning the table that we come to on Sunday morning, looks forward to that great eschatological feast, meaning the feast that is to come, the feast where Jesus celebrates with his bride, the church. Now, when it comes to eschatology, there is a lot of mystery still in Scripture, so we have to be careful when it comes to interpreting it. At the same time, we have so many hints, so many suggestions of the good things that are to come, that the study of eschatology is ultimately encouraging and profoundly hopeful. Before we close, let's look at a few fun questions. We have questions this time from Susanna and Amara. Susanna asks, if you went away for a trip and when you came back, our church had a rock band for singing, would you freak out? Susanna, probably not. If there's one thing that should be clear about me by now, it's that I have a very small capacity for freaking out. My version of freaking out is a normal person's minor perturbation. Plus, it would really depend on which rock band you're talking about, because some are better than others, and I'd rather have a good one than a bad one. And remember, it's not the style of music that determines what's appropriate to worship. There aren't good styles and bad styles that are automatically excluded. It's more complicated than that. The most important thing is that the music that we use in worship, like everything else in the service, is designed to enhance the worship of God's people. So that means a lot of things, but some of the things it means is that the music has to be singable. It shouldn't be a performance that people have to sit back and watch instead of participate in. It shouldn't be about showing off the skill of the musician. In fact, the focus shouldn't be on the musicians, but on God. Now that does make a lot of music these days inappropriate for worship, even if it's good in and of itself, because a lot of our music is written and performed with a commercial mindset where the focus has to be on the personality of the performer. But you know what? I've been to churches where the music really was all about the performers, and I still didn't freak out. And now Amara asks, as a kid, was there an instrument that you wanted to play? If so, which one? Amara, there were a lot of instruments that I wanted to play at different points in my childhood. Everything from the electric guitar to the cello to the bagpipes to the xylophone. But the only ones I ever had lessons for were the piano, which I took piano lessons really young and didn't do very well, and then the saxophone, which I tried in sixth grade. The problem with both is that I'm good at learning things that can be explained, but not so good at things that require a lot of physical dexterity and coordination, and especially repetition, I always wanted someone to just tell me how to play, to just explain how to play, and then I thought I'd be able to do it. Instead, you have to practice and practice and practice. Well, as a result, I can't play any instruments at all because I was just never good at practice. Maybe I was just too lazy, not disciplined enough in the right ways. But if I could go back and just learn one instrument Right now, I think it would probably have to be the cello. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Until next time, remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. Never be afraid to ask, and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will stand up to scrutiny. So until next time, keep asking the big questions.